Turn to Matthew chapter 5, if you would, this morning. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to begin in verse 2. Most of you know already that we are currently in a sermon series called Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ, which is a chronological walk through the life of our Lord Jesus. And uh, we've come to the probably the most famous of all the passages in the Scripture that Jesus spoke, and that is the Sermon on the Mount. Um, at this point, Jesus is about 18 months into his earthly ministry. Uh, he's back from Galilee at this point, from a short time in Judea for an unspecified feast. He's back in Galilee for what scholars call the latter Galilean portion of his ministry. And he has just chosen his 12 apostles from among a larger group of disciples. And these 12 would be the ones that he was going to send out as extensions of his ministry. And what is Jesus' ministry? Well, it's the proclamation and the demonstration that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Therefore, everyone is to repent and believe the gospel. And more than that, he has shown that he is the long-awaited king, the Messiah. And more than that, he's not just merely a human king. He is indeed the son of God. The second person in the Godhead, co-equal with God the Father. As Jesus has been proclaiming and demonstrating these things... He's been preaching, he's also been doing miracles, and um, this has begun to ruffle the feathers of some of the Jewish leaders of the day, so much so that they want him dead. At this point, the Jewish leaders, the the scribes, the chief priests, the elders of, of the Jewish people, they want him dead at this point in his ministry. But the main reason they've not killed him is that he's constantly surrounded by crowds, and uh They see that he is popular with the people right now, and they're afraid of the crowds more than anything else. But there will come a time when the crowds will fall in line with the Jewish leaders, and they too will express their hatred toward Jesus to the point that they demand his death. But for now, Jesus is surrounded by very large crowds. So we read in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, that he saw the crowds, so he went up to the mountain to create some separation, and then he sat down. And as I told you a couple weeks back, that's the, the teaching position, the teaching posture common to Jesus' day, and this was to demonstrate that he was about to teach or to proclaim something very important. And at that point, we read that his disciples came to him. So this sermon on the mount is for the disciples. But we also know at the end of the sermon that there were crowds listening in. They were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority. But the main audience, and this is so important to remember for the Sermon on the Mount, the main audience for the sermon is made up of the disciples of Jesus, the citizens of the kingdom. So this is King Jesus proclaiming to kingdom citizens the truth about kingdom living. That's how I kind of summarize the Sermon on the Mount. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about, kingdom living. How should one who is part of the kingdom of God, how should one live? What should set him apart? So this sermon is about being different from the world. And nothing sets the tone for differentness more than these beatitudes. These beatitudes really stand out as a way of living, character traits, if you will, of people diametrically opposed to the way the world would operate. These are eight blessings that Jesus pronounces upon those kingdom citizens. And they're antithetical to what the world says one needs in order to be blessed. So as we discussed a couple of weeks ago, this word blessed also means happy. So Jesus says, happy are the Fill in the blank. And the Beatitudes indeed are the traits 
of kingdom citizens, they are indeed what make us blessed, what make us happy. And so these kingdom citizens, we are set apart, we are different. And these eight beatitudes deal with the character, the heart of kingdom citizens. Before we can get into the conduct of kingdom citizens, which is what most of the rest of the Sermon on the Mount deals with, Jesus first has to deal with our character, right? So we were doing some remodeling in our house this week, and you know, before you can put on that final coat of paint, there's lots of other things that need to be done first. There's the patching of the holes and the priming and all that kind of stuff. So these Beatitudes are kind of like a primer, if you will. Jesus is going to deal with the heart before he gets to the conduct. And so now please turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 2. Stand, if you would, as we read this passage of Scripture. We're going to go through the Beatitudes. We've already done one Beatitude. We'll be on the second one today. If you were hoping that Steve might get more than one in one sermon... Uh, so far, it's not looking good. So, second Beatitude today, but we'll always read all the Beatitudes before each one of these sermons. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 2, and this is the word of the Lord. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you, first of all, this morning for this beautiful baptism that we were able to witness and the wonderful testimony that Maddie gave. I can't think of a better way to demonstrate the Beatitudes than baptism. It is a humiliating thing. It is a humbling experience, and it should be, for it demonstrates that we are united to Christ, and therefore we've been buried with him in baptism, and we've been raised to walk in a new way of life, a new kingdom way of living. But that being buried with him in baptism, that requires us to be empty, as Maddie so eloquently said. It requires us to be broken. It requires us to be poor in spirit. And to mourn over our sin. So we pray, Father, this morning that you would break some hearts. This mourning over sin isn't something that we do once. It is a constant part of the Christian life. So God, teach us to mourn this morning over our sins so that we can be happy. We can be blessed. Be the people you want us to be. Lord, give us ears to hear and give me a mouth to speak. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated, please. So we come to our second beatitude, and the promise associated with the second beatitude is they shall be comforted. And I guess to sort of illustrate this this morning, I brought a a comfort blankie, all right? Now, how many of you growing up had a a blankie to keep you comfort? Leo, you still got it? I do. All right. Uh, It's 25 years old? All right. So this is a... This is a comfort blanket that one of my kids had. 
Um, I think you can guess it probably wasn't Noah. <laughs> um, but one of my kids had this comfort blanket. Now, all of them always like this specific type of blanket because it has the, the little, what is this called, this material here? Satin. It's real cool to the touch, and you know, they like to rub it up against their face. And of course, when they're scared or, or it's dark at night and they're sleeping and like to cuddle up with this and feel comforted. Now, of course, as adults, we, most of us, don't have comfort blankies, right? And if you were relying on this to, to keep comfortable at night, someone may laugh at you. I don't know. They may say, you know, Toby, you need to give up the blankie now, you know, whatever it might be. You know what? I want this to illustrate simply that this reminds me of what the world goes after for comfort. The world seeks comforts that do not really satisfy. This blanket doesn't do really anything for the person. It's just something they can snuggle up with, okay? The world seeks false comforts that the world offers, and there's only one comfort for the soul. The world will comfort itself with a thousand other things. Like I said, I can't even think of a better way to start the sermon than Maddie's testimony. She shared some of the false comforts she went after, even false comforts that she went after after she thought she was already a Christian. And there are many false comforts that the world is trying to get us to go after. And this morning I want to talk about the only comfort that truly does anything for the soul. But it has to come to those who first are mourning. So let's talk about this second beatitude this morning. Perhaps none of the beatitudes bristle against our sensibilities more than this second one. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This seems totally paradoxical. Happy are the mourners. Happy are the sad. It sounds utterly foolish. It seems utterly contradictory. It seems to make no sense to us. Well, it it doesn't make sense to the blind eyes of the flesh. But with spiritual eyes open to see spiritual truths, it does make sense. Matter of fact, it logically flows from the first beatitude. Which was this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The first beatitude, if you'll recall, is all about seeing our spiritual condition before a holy God. Namely, that we are totally bankrupt, totally undone, totally ruined due to our sin. Only those who know this about themselves, only those who understand their depravity, are those who will indeed inherit the kingdom of heaven. And it is natural that those who see their spiritual destitution, their poverty of spirit, react by mourning over that sin. An awareness of one's spiritual bankruptcy should cause a deep and profound sadness. A deep and profound mourning. So the first thing I'm going to give you in your notes this morning is this. A definition of what the mourning is here in this passage. And it's simply this. Mourning in this beatitude simply means a deep and profound sadness over sin that leads us to repentance. A deep and profound sadness over sin that leads us to repentance. There are nine words used in the New Testament to refer to sadness or mourning or crying. And this one used here in this beatitude is by far the strongest of all those words. It means a very deep inner agony. You're thinking, surely, Pastor Steve, you can have a more uplifting sermon for the new year, right? Deep inner agony for 2014? 
Well, friend, I want you to take heart because this morning is good. Because godly grief, friends, is gospel work. Godly grief is gospel work. For happy are those who realize and recognize their spiritual bankruptcy and then mourn over that bankruptcy. They are happy. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven first. And secondly, they shall be comforted. Kingdom citizens are happily bankrupt and happily sad. So those are our first two beatitudes. And this is the trait. There's two of the first eight traits here of being a citizen of God's kingdom. So let's meditate upon what it means to mourn over our sin this morning. And I think we'll see that we are to mourn, to be deeply sad over our sin on at least three different levels. And we'll see corresponding comfort in the gospel for each one of these levels. So here's the first one in your notes. Number one, we must mourn over sin on the personal level. We mourn over the sin that remains in us. We mourn over the sin that remains in us. Now before I get into that full-fledged, let me first acknowledge that we can't even come to Christ without seeing our sin and mourning over it, which is exactly what we just saw in the testimony up here this morning. The first step in becoming a kingdom citizen is to see your spiritual bankruptcy and to mourn over it. There is no true salvation apart from repentance. To mourn over sin can lead to nothing but repentance. We mourn because we hate our sin now because our eyes have been opened to its hideousness. Jesus didn't say, blessed are those who are upset, or blessed are those who are frustrated or disappointed about their sin. He said, blessed are those who mourn over their sin. We are deeply agonized over sin. We see its hideous nature and we, we feel the same way about our sin that God does and therefore we repent. Why such a reaction? Why do we repent when we made aware of our sin? Because we've seen God. Our eyes have been opened to who he is. We discussed this last week. We can't help but say, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips when we see God. You can't help but say that. No, we don't say, ah shucks, or oh bummer, or oops. We say, woe is me. When we've really been confronted with our sin in the light of a holy God, our reaction is, whoa. Not, huh, too bad. Guess I need to be a better person. Deep repentance is brought on by a very high view of God. When man's eyes are open to who God is, he is inevitably broken and sad over his sin, and he repents. Salvation comes to no man who is not mournful over sin. When I hear of salvation where people come to Jesus without repentance, I sincerely doubt that their eyes have ever been opened to see Christ. Because when your eyes have been opened to see Christ, you repent. So there is a false gospel out there that says people can come to Christ without repentance. No, they can't. They're coming to an image that they've created. They haven't seen the one true Christ. Because if they have seen him, they have to repent. They mourn. They say, woe is me in the light of the holiness and the glory of Christ. I believe that with all my heart. I do not believe in easy believism. We are broken like Maddie was when we see Christ. Her first baptism was the easy believism. Her second baptism was true and right because she mourned over her sin. And the church is filled with people that need to do what that courageous young lady just did. Get it right. 
mourn over their sin, repent, and come to Christ and be baptized the right way. She stands as an example to many, many in the church and to perhaps many of our other youth. I'm very encouraged by what she did this morning. Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. That's how we react when we see Christ. Sadly, the message we hear today isn't repent. What you hear today is come to Jesus and you'll have joy and you'll have peace and you'll have whatever, you name it. In other words, people hold out the benefits of knowing Christ as a lure. But that's not how Jesus does it. Peter and I just had this conversation a few weeks ago. We talked about, hey, come to Jesus. You can have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. What are those things? Those are the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Jesus proclaims the hard truth that we must first be broken over our sin and repent. Only after that will we experience the glorious filling of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. It'll bubble up from within and flow out. But many don't preach repentance because they're afraid it'll make the church unattractive. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. He made this observation about the lack of mourning over sin that's in the church. He said this, But I also think that another explanation of this is the idea which has gained currency that if we as Christians are to attract those who are not Christians, we must deliberately affect an appearance of brightness and joviality. Thus many try to assume a kind of joy and happiness, which is not something that rises from within, but is something we put on. Now, probably that is the main explanation of the absence of this characteristic of mourning in the life of the church today. It is this superficiality, this glibness or joviality that is almost unintelligent. It is this endeavor to appear to be something and to cut a certain figure instead of a life arising from within which controls and determines the whole of our appearance and behavior. Martin Lloyd-Jones continues, I sometimes think, however, that the ultimate explanation of it all is something still deeper and still more serious. I cannot help but feeling that the final explanation of the state of the church today is a defective sense of sin and a defective doctrine of sin. Coupled with that, of course, is a failure to understand the true nature of Christian joy. There is a double failure. That was written 55 years ago. If it was true in Martin Lloyd-Jones' day, how much truer is it in our day when pastors want to act like rock stars and boys instead of being men who are willing to cry over their sin. Salvation doesn't come by the church convincing people that Jesus has a wonderful promise in store for those who want it for themselves, but by the Holy Spirit convicting people that there is destruction in store for them if they don't repent of their sin. Look at the way Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. Acts 2, 36 he said, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And when the people heard that, they reacted by being convicted of their sin and they mourned over their sin. And in verse 37 of Acts chapter 2, they said this. It says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? They were cut to the heart. And they said, what shall we do? And Peter responds in verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So what is first? Brokenness over sin 
and repentance, then and only then does Peter say what he says after that. He says, and then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. We all must mourn over our sin in order to come into the kingdom. But more to our point this morning. Remember, this sermon was preached to those who were proclaiming, at least, to be followers of Jesus, the disciples, the kingdom citizens. So more important to our point this morning is that kingdom citizens are marked or are characterized by continual mourning over sin. Let me say that again. Kingdom citizens are marked by continual mourning over sin. But what is true mourning over sin? For there are those that put on a show and seem to be sad over their sin, but they're merely experiencing and expressing fleshly sorrow over sin. Sorrow that is no more spiritual than a child being upset because he's been grounded because he didn't do his homework. It's superficial sadness over consequences, frustration over circumstances, and even a level of guilt over one's behavior, but it's still not the deep mourning over sin that leads to true repentance. Paul speaks of these two types of grief in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. He says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Let me read it again. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation. Friends, if you want to separate repentance and salvation, you've got to cut Paul's words in half and take out the word repentance. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Judas was expressing a worldly grief as he changed his mind after he betrayed our Lord and threw that silver back at the feet of the chief priests and the elders of Israel. He even said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. He acknowledged his sin, but he didn't have godly grief. We see no evidence of repentance, only remorse. You understand those are two different things, right? Repentance and remorse. We're not called to be remorseful in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. We're called to repent. And then you have Peter, on the other hand, who had denied the Lord three times. He heard the rooster crow and went out and wept bitterly, deep sadness over his sin. And we know this because he proved to be a true follower of Christ as he was restored. I think the key to discerning the difference is to see where our grief is focused. Is it focused on us? Am I sad because of the way the sin has affected me? Or is it focused on God? Am I sad because I've committed a treasonous act against the holy God? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. We must be like David and realize Psalm 51.4. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. But how easy it is to fall into worldly grief over our sin. And how resistant we are to be brought into godly grief. We need God to stir up godly grief in us. Isaiah 66, second half of verse 2 in Isaiah 66 says, But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. The word produces the right kind of grief. Friends, do you want to have the right kind of grief over your sins? It's produced by being in the word. That's why, just like poor in spirit... And like all the other Beatitudes, mourning over sin 
is a supernatural work that God does. God must reveal himself to us. He must open our eyes to see him. He must produce in us his own hatred of sin so that we hate sin as he hates sin so that we can desire to be holy as he is holy. He does a spiritual work through his word. So do you want to be crushed in the right way about your sin? Then let the crushing come from right here. Hebrews 4, 12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and spirit of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. As I was growing up as a kid, you always, you know, of course, you got the Ephesians 6 passage, and it talks about the sword of the Spirit and that being your offensive weapon. And sometimes that was always cross-referenced with this verse right here in Hebrews chapter 4. Well, you know, it's this double-edged sword. In matter of fact, I remember as clear as day being taught as a child in a Sunday school class, that means you can hit Satan going that way and you can hit him on the way back, right? Because it's a double-edged sword. That double-edged sword in Hebrews 14 is not for Satan, it's for you. It's to pierce our hearts. It cuts both ways in us, like a surgeon's scalpel, to cut out sin. If we come to one another grieving over our sin, wallowing in our sin, our first question to one another should be, how has God shown you this sin in his word? Otherwise, it just may be worldly grief. I think there's a lot of times we confess our sin to one another. It's just worldly grief. We're just upset because our life has gotten screwed up because we sin. So as we hold each other accountable in this church and we confess sin to one another, I think our question needs to be, okay, how has the Lord used his word to cut that out of your heart? If they say, well, I just, I just feel bad about it, send them back to the word. Because we want it to be godly grief that leads to repentance. Because worldly grief leads to death. It leads to the wrong kind of result, and that sin will just resurface in their life. How has he brought about the conviction is what we should ask someone. Has he brought it through his word? Godly grief, friends, drives us to gospel grace. So do you want to be happy in 2014? Then get sad. By being in his word consistently this year, convicted by it, then and only then will you find comfort. What comfort? The comfort of forgiveness. Only those who mourn over their sin have the great comfort of knowing they are forgiven. That their sins have been washed away. That they've been made right with God. They've been justified. That the sins that once separated us from our God have now been removed as far as the east is from the west. Psalm 32, 1 says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now you may be saying, okay, Pastor Steve, I'm a Christian. I did mourn over my sin, and then I came to Christ. Therefore, I don't focus on that anymore, because I'm indeed forgiven. And so I don't worry about that anymore. I don't want you to hear this message about mourning over sin. I recently read someone who teaches that we are not supposed to call each other sinners. He said, don't call each other sinners because we're forgiven. That's foolishness. Friends, so long as we are in these bodies, we are at war with sin, and we keep mourning over our sin. Blessed are those who mourn. The verb tense here that Jesus uses is that of a present 
continuous action. It is not blessed are those who have mourned, but blessed are those who mourn and who continue to mourn over our sin. That's why the Apostle John wrote, 1 John 1, 8 and following, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's written to believers, to kingdom citizens. We were sinners, and we still are sinners. But if we are in Christ, then we've been forgiven, and sin no longer rules over us. Its power has been broken, and we are now under the rule of Christ, and we should be progressively seeing sin be defeated in our lives. The unbeliever has no power over sin, has no desire to get rid of sin. He may have desire to get rid of the consequences, but if he can commit the sin without the consequences, he's fine. The believer has power through Christ. He's been buried with Christ. He's been raised to walk in newness of life. But it is a battle. It's a battle that true believers will win. For true believers will persevere to the end. The reason believers today do not mourn over sin is that we have a defective view of sanctification. We have a defective view of what it means to grow in Christ. John Stott said in his commentary on this text, I fear that many evangelical Christians, by making much of grace... Sometimes thereby make light of sin. There is not enough sorrow of sin among the churches. And he's right. There's not enough sorrow over sin in our churches. How many modern day evangelicals do you hear say things like this? This is David Brainerd who wrote in his journal on October 18th and 1740. He said, In my morning devotions my soul was exceedingly melted. And bitterly mourned over my exceeding sinfulness and vileness. This is a man who gave up everything to go and be a missionary to the Native Americans. End up dying very young. He gave it all up. And we think, oh boy, he's got it all together. He's holy. He gets up and writes about his mourning over the exceeding sinfulness in his own heart. You may say, well that's just prudish fundamentalist piety of a bygone era. I say that's biblical mourning over sin and it should mark every single kingdom citizen. And I say that's what the Apostle Paul practiced. Romans 7, 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And then he goes on in Romans 8, 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Friends, the only way to enjoy the comfort of Romans 8 is to experience the morning of Romans 7. The comfort of Romans 8 follows the morning of Romans 7. Don't settle for the superficial joy peddled by so many in the church today. Become a deep mourner over your sin and you will enter a much deeper level of joy. The Christian life is one of constant mourning over sin and constant comfort. Constant mourning over sin and constant comfort. The word comfort here that Jesus uses is from from the Greek word. That's the same Greek word used in, in John chapter 14 and John chapter 15 to refer to the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit is called our comforter or our helper. You may have heard of the, our paraclete, as the people will say sometimes, referring to Jesus, our counsel, I mean, to the Holy Spirit, our counselor. How does God provide comfort? He does it through his Holy Spirit. And how does the Holy Spirit comfort? I hate to sound like a broken record, friends. It's through his word. 
through his word. Why we do these Bible verses. And, and I didn't do it this year. I did it last year. And if you want one, I can give you. There's tons of resources out there for reading through the Bible in a year. Why do we do Bible reading plans? Why do we do these things? Because, number one, we want to be convicted of our sin. We want to mourn of our sin. And we want to experience the deep joy of being comforted by the Holy Spirit. Both happen when we get into this word. Both. He convicts and he comforts. He convicts and he comforts. He convicts and he comforts. You know what we call that process? Spiritual maturity. He convicts and he comforts. He convicts and he comforts. That's spiritual maturity. Your spiritual growth is a continually deepening awareness over your sin and a continually deepening experience of comfort of joy over forgiven sin. Again, this is a supernatural work of God. So he tells us that he's going to do it in us. If you're truly a believer, God tells us in his word that he is going to do this in us. Hebrews 12, verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom this father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You see, the problem in the church today is that we promise the peaceful fruit of righteousness without telling Christians they need to go through the discipline of God. Christian maturity involves continual brokenness over sin and continual comforting from the Holy Spirit. My friends, Think about this. Paul gives us this, or whoever wrote Hebrews, gives us this illustration of, of Father, our, our Heavenly Father disciplining us like our fathers in our homes do. There is no comfort in a home where a father practices no discipline. Simply chaos. There is no comfort in a home where a father practices no discipline over his children. You may think that's comforting. I'm just going to let the kids kind of do what they want. We're not going to be strict parents. That's not comfort. Those kids don't grow up comforted. They grow up with chaos and then leave the nest and create more chaos. So why do we discipline our sons and our daughters? It's not just for our comfort, although that's good sometimes. It's for their comfort. They may not feel comforted when you take away the gaming system for a week. They may not feel comforted when they have to be spanked. But ultimately, it is for their comfort. Friends, it's the same thing. As the Lord, through his word, brings you into a deeper awareness of your sin, it doesn't feel comforting. But ultimately, it is. We had to believe the promise, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Psalm 23, verse 4 says, Your rod and your staff, 
they comfort me. Not just the staff that guides, but the rod that corrects. They both comfort me. Oh, what comfort and joy there is knowing God and being disciplined by him. Friends, living a life of constant mourning over sin and constant comfort leads us to become much better worshipers. We will worship like the woman who anointed our Lord's feet with oil and wiped them with her, her tears and her hair. Of her, our Lord says in Luke seven forty seven. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Do you want to love the Lord much in 2014? See your sin. Mourn over your sin. Then you'll know him more and you'll enjoy him more. Listen to James, the brother of our Lord Jesus. James says in James 4, 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. You know what? That's the only portion of that verse we give to people, don't we? Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Friends, that's only half of that verse. Listen to the rest of it. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Well, that, that part of the verse doesn't sound as nice to say to people. Of course it doesn't, because we bought into the lie that we're supposed to go out there and make the church attractive. Read the whole verse, friends. Tell people the whole word. Yes, draw near to God, he'll draw near to you, but how do you do that? Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Read the whole thing. Don't settle for bumper sticker Christianity. It'll lead you astray. Mourn over your sin. Then and only then will you be able to say what David said in Psalm 30, verse 11 that we read earlier. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth. You have clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. True happiness comes through true sadness over sin, which leads to true comfort and makes us true worshipers. Now, that's the most important thing. I know you're thinking, you're looking at your notes saying, oh, my goodness, it is 12. He's only got one point. Hang with me. The next two points are much quicker. I want to focus because I think the main focus of this beatitude is on the personal level. But it does go beyond that. So real quickly here, and I'll go through these last couple of things a little bit more quickly. The next one, we must mourn over sin on the corporate level. And what I mean by that is God's people, the church. We mourn over the sin that ravages the church. Within the church, we are to mourn over one another's sins. I believe that's the only way we can actually practice Hebrews 3.13. Where we are commanded to exhort one another every day, so long as it is called today, that none may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Only when we mourn over other sins will we truly love them the way we should. True mourning leads to true love. I mean, if you were at a funeral and there was some uninterested person there, or maybe they were playing, I've seen this at a funeral before, people got their smartphone out. You know, whatever, they're playing a game, I don't know what they're doing, but they're not mourning. And so an uninterested person at a funeral is a very unloving person to the family of the one who's died. So too, friends, if you truly love those in the church, you will mourn with those who mourn. You will weep with those who weep so that you can then rejoice with those who rejoice. 
We are called to corporately speak the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. We can't do that if we don't hate and mourn over the sin in the body. Friends, not only is our personal maturity at stake, our church's maturity is at stake with whether or not we mourn over each other's sins. A mature church can mourn over sin together. We are to be especially mournful when there's unrepentant sin in the church. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 2, speaking of unrepentant sin in the church, Paul says, And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. And later Paul writes to the same church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 21, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. Paul spoke of mourning over unrepentant sin in the church. I believe mourning over sin is at least part of what Paul means when he says rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We weep with each other as we weep over sin too. And Paul modeled this. Acts chapter 20 verse 31. He's speaking to the Ephesian elders. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And Paul even wept over those who claimed to be Christians but evidence proved otherwise. Philippians 3, 18. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. How many of us act like Paul when it comes to sin in the church? Do we mourn over sin in the church? Do we, and we've got to be careful here. Do we shed sympathetic tears or do we throw self-righteous tirades? How many of the blogs out there that are pointing out the deficiencies in the church are done with tears? Sometimes I read a blog and read angry words that a Christian might write about another Christian. And I simply want to ask, did you cry as you wrote this? If not, go back and start over. Because if you're not weeping over the sin that's ravaging the church today and you're just complaining about it, get back. Get some right with your heart here. Because you should weep as the bride of Christ is ravaged by sin and the sin that's going on. You should weep. We should ask God to stir up a true spirit of mourning in our heart, not just anger. And yes, we should point out false teachers, but not with a spirit of smug superiority, but one of deep sadness over the sheep that are being led astray. And yes, we point out the problems and the sin in the church, but if we're not doing it with tears and with sincere mourning in our heart over what's happening to the bride of Christ, we need to stop and ask the Lord to give us a genuine heart of mourning. So we can be like Ezekiel. Ezekiel 9.4, he said, he groaned over all the abominations that were committed in Jerusalem. Or Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 9.1, he says his eyes were a fountain of tears day and night over the people of Israel. Or Ezra, in Ezra 10.9, who mourned over the faithlessness of the exiles. Or more importantly, like our Lord Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 19, verse 41, who on Palm Sunday, as he draw near to the city of Jerusalem, it says he drew near, saw the city, and wept over it. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, 136, My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. If we will be Bible-saturated Christians, we cannot help but mourn when we see people living in sin. So I'm going to be a broken record again. 
if we are saturated by this word in 2014, we cannot help but mourn as we see people living in sin. D.A. Carson says, the light of God's revelation leads us to grieve. He says, the man who lives in the light of them, speaking about the revelation of God's word, and rightly assesses himself in his word, in light of it, cannot but mourn. He mourns for the sins and the blasphemies of his nation. He mourns for the erosion of the very concept of truth. He mourns over greed, the cynicism, the lack of integrity. He mourns that there are so few mourners. Which leads me to our final level of mourning. Number three, we must mourn over sin on the cosmic level. And what I mean by that is we mourn over the sin that has ruined our world. When we see terrible tragedies, we should weep. We should weep because this world is not the way it should be. I am reminded of, how many of you guys are familiar with William Wilberforce? Kids, anybody? Some? Okay. Instrumental man, politician in England that brought the end of the slave trade in England, which set the dominoes falling to even bring the end of the slave trade here. Well, William Wilberforce, when he first took on the slave trade, he did it for political reasons. He wasn't a believer yet. But early on in his political life, the Lord saved him, convicted him, brought him into new life. He was born again. And all of a sudden, if you read William Wilberforce, you'll see that it went from being a political idea that he had to get rid of the slave trade to being a conviction of his heart. And he wept over the reality of the slave trade for 30 years. He wept and wept and wept until it was finally eradicated. We mourn when we see the atrocities that men are capable of. We weep when we see people living in a godless, loveless society, driven by the ways of the world. We see people shackled by sin, rebelling openly against God, shamelessly carrying out the deeds of the flesh. When we see these things, we should weep. We mourn when we see natural disasters ravage our world. We see tornadoes destroy homes, earthquakes bring down buildings, tsunamis take out whole cities. We should weep when we see these things, for nature itself weeps. Romans 8, 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So we mourn because we know this isn't the way it should be. Jesus goes to Lazarus's grave in the shortest verse in scripture, John 11:35, it says he wept. We weep too. We weep over death, we weep over disease, we weep over calamity, we weep over destruction, we weep over disasters. That's why when I do funerals, it's common that sometimes at a Christian funeral you'll have someone come to you and say I just want it to be a celebration service. That's fine. But there needs to be weeping involved too. Because when we weep, we recognize that death is an intruder. And if we don't weep, we're not giving the full gospel. If we just go, okay, let's all just celebrate. Let's have fun. Let's throw a party. That so-and-so has gone to heaven. First of all, we're not being honest. Because the heart that really loved that person is grieving. Because the heart knows this isn't the way it's supposed to be. And so we should grieve. There's a very good place for grieving and mourning in a funeral. We should grieve because this isn't the way the world should be. We look forward to Revelation 21. Then I saw the new heaven and the new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. 
prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So to conclude this morning, in a world that says we should avoid mourning, and just leave our troubles behind, Jesus says you'll only be truly happy when you mourn. When you mourn in a deep inner sadness over the sin. Your sin, the sin that goes on within the people of God, and the sin that affects our world. And we will be comforted. We'll be comforted knowing that we have been forgiven. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We'll be comforted knowing that God is making the bride of Christ pure. Despite the fact of all the stuff we see in the church, God is making his bride pure. And we'll be comforted knowing that Jesus is making all things new. Spurgeon said this, How great a blessing is sorrow since it gives room for the Lord to administer comfort. Our griefs are blessed, for they are our points of contact with the divine comforter. The Beatitudes read like a paradox, but it is true. As some of us know full well, our morning hours have brought us more comfort than our days of mirth. So let me just close with this passage of Scripture, and then we'll pray. Now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I praise you and thank you for these beatitudes and how they seem to be the polar opposite of what the world would have us do. But as we mentioned a few weeks back, the world's flying upside down. The world's driving itself into the ground. So God, I pray that you would set our hearts right side up because we like to copy the world and the church. How easily we fall into that trap of wanting to be attractive to the world. But the Beatitudes are not attractive. They're not. And so God, I pray that you'd help us to be kingdom people, be true to your word, to be mourners who mourn because we are so poor in spirit and that we mourn all throughout our life, constantly digging deeper and seeing sin we didn't see 10 years ago. Lord, my prayer is that you'll show me sin I never knew I had. I pray that for all the people at Harvest. I desperately pray that there are people here that are maturing in their faith. I praise you for the testimony of Maddie, who when she came to this church at first, wasn't a believer. And she said she began to see something different here. Oh, Lord, make us different. That gives me encouragement, Father, that something's something's right here. Make us different than the world. Make us true mourners. And only then will we have comfort. Oh, not the silly comforts the world offers, Father, but the comfort that comes through your Holy Spirit, our comforter, the comfort that he gives us as he continues to administer his word in our lives day in and day out. So we thank you, Lord. We give all the praise and glory to you for everything that's happened today. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.